Hi everyone. Um, today we're going to talk a little bit about therapeutics. Um, there's a lot of controversies, of course, with these uh, therapeutic agents since uh, we truly don't have um, a lot of evidence supporting their use. Um, yet nationwide um, and even worldwide, um, these are being uh, used in a variety of ways, of course in clinical trials, appropriately so, but also outside of clinical trials, um, which is okay, uh, but I think comes with certain caveats. So in this conversation, I talk about all of these issues with uh, Dr. Mahesh Patel and uh, Scott Borghetti as well um, from the infectious disease section. Now, before I move on to that conversation, I wanted to mention specifically the drugs and their mode of action, uh, since I think this, is some, this isn't something that we um, clearly stated in our conversations. So the first drug that I want to talk about is remdesivir. Remdesivir is one of the drugs that we hope will work and it's part of some NIH-sponsored trials. Um, remdesivir is a nucleotide prodrug that is metabolized to adenosine triphosphate, which inhibits viral RNA and RNA polymerase, causing basically premature termination of the RNA transcription. So similar to your HIV drugs um, and other antivirals, it kind of uh, interferes with the usual process um, of the virus. And remdesivir has shown in vitro activity of being able to do this uh, for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and this was published in Cell Research in 2020. Some animal models have shown some potential kind of improvement as well um, with reduced lung viral loads when remdesivir is used. Um, and this is also, was also true for MERS-CoV as well. So it seems to have some effect on coronaviruses. Um, and we also looked into it uh, for Ebola in a randomized controlled trial, uh, but it didn't show favorable, out favorable outcomes. Um, another, of course, very important drug that we will talk about in this conversation is hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. So hydroxychloroquine is a anti-malarial, um, it's an aminoquinolone, uh, sorry, aminoquinoline, <laughs> Uh, shown to have in vitro but not yet in vivo activity against a, you know multiple RNA viruses including SARS-CoV-1. So for SARS-CoV-1 um, there was some in vitro activity and that was published in uh, antiviral uh, an antiviral as journal in 2020. Um, hydroxychloroquine seems to have multiple different mechanisms including inhibition of viral entry. Hydroxychloroquine inhibits the synthesis of sialic acids and interferes with uh, protein glycosylation uh, that was published uh, way back in 2005 for other coronaviruses. Inhibition of viral release into the host cell is another potential antiviral mechanism. It blocks the endosomal acidification, which activates endosomal proteases. Um, and this is something that we've known, known since 2004 for other coronaviruses. Um, reduction of viral infectivity is another mechanism. It inhibits protein glycosylation and proteolytic maturation of viral proteins. Um, and this is something, once again, that we know way back from 1994 and 2004. Um, and then there's, of course, the immunomodulation. Um, it uh, reduces toll-like receptors um, that has some impact on the number of pro-inflammatory cytokines. So th this is all of the kind of basic science information that gives us the possibility that it might uh, that it might work. So that's its mechanism of action. We will go into the clinical evidence in the conversation. So I will leave that up until um, then. 
other potential drugs, uh, we talked about lopinavir and ritonavir. Um, lopinavir and ritonavir are, of course, um, HIV drugs, uh, protease inhibitors. Um, and then last but not least, anti-IL-6 agents. So these are, um, you know, IL-6 activates T cells and macrophages. So these anti-IL-6 agents have, uh, you know, have a mechanism of action um, via affecting your IL-6. So with that, just a quick summary of the actual mechanism of actions and what we don't know from the bench. Um, I will move on uh, then to connect you with this conversation with Scott and Mahesh, uh, where we talk a, a little bit more about the rest of the evidence. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy the conversation. Doesn't sound, doesn't sound, <laughs> that doesn't sound but, wrong. No, whatever, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> oh my God. All right, so welcome everyone. Uh, I am Zooming it with two prestigious experts, Scott Borghetti and Mahesh Patel. And today we wanted to talk about therapeutics. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on with regards to therapeutics and a lot that we're studying. So. Overall, what I want to talk about is perhaps, you know, what is the state of therapeutics? What are we doing at UIC? Um, and, you know, what what options are there and, and what studies uh, are, are also ongoing that we're anxiously waiting? Um, so starting with you guys, I'll let you guys chime in. What is kind of the overall blanket kind of statement with regards to the state of therapeutics? I mean, the short answer is we're trying a lot of stuff and there's not much data to support any of it. Gotcha. Um, and and uh, despite the fact that there's not a lot of evidence to support any of it, there's, I was just looking today, there's like all, you know, all these prestigious institutions that have these really nice flow charts and like different people are picking different ones to follow. And at the end of the day, once you get past the very attractive flow charts, the data uh, is relatively um, thin for pretty much anything that's being used. And um, absolutely. Said, and and oh, for that, no. for the flow chart, I'll say what, what I have said in some of our ID meetings, right? That yeah. I'm sure that for all of those floor charts, there's some obnoxious ID guy like me saying, we don't know what we're doing. And it kind of similar to what you were saying. So I think we look at those flow charts like as if they were absolute fact, um, when in fact they, they're, they're, you know, just flow charts with, uh, Probably some minimal context with regards to the data behind. Um, what do you? What are your takes, Doctor Patel? Well, I mean, like I, you know, I agree with Scott right now that basically we don't know if anything what works, if anything. And uh, you know, I guess we can. Uh, so far, people have been using data that's come from China uh, and Italy because they were the first to have experienced this. And I think that's pretty much all we have to go on. Again, if you look at most of that data, it includes uh, really, really small numbers of patients. And it's hard to see ordinarily if this were not a pandemic response, uh, much of the stuff that's getting published, to be frank, would not be would not really actually be published in any of these leading journals. It's like poor Getty-level trial data that just yeah. wouldn't fly in, <laughs> in, a, in a pandemic. You know, you got to make yeah. the outside. Yeah. And so, you know, similar to like how some of our, uh, you know, some some of our colleagues uh, told 
some of their colleagues to just go ahead and take hydroxychloroquine uh, because they think it works. Uh, I think a lot of this is just based on so far, it's really not that much more than anecdotes. So right what, um, what are these drugs? Uh, for our residents who are listening, um, maybe we should go one by one to say kind of what these drugs are, um, work, and you know, kind of put them in context with regards to why are we talking about them in the first place. So let's start with chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine as, as um, our first examples of possible therapeutics. Um, so hydroxychloroquine, of course, is a drug that is uh, primarily used from an anti-malarial standpoint, but also an anti-inflammatory standpoint for rheumatic, rheumatologic diseases. But it seems to have some sort of um, antiviral properties. Uh, this is actually not something new. Um, if I'm not mistaken, we studied the use of quinine and, and hydroxy, hy, 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 hydro, hydroxychloroquine, sorry, um, even in 1918. Um, however, you know, we really haven't needed it to the point that we do now. Um, and this is where some of these uh, studies and smaller studies are coming from. Um, what other drugs do we have out there? Oh, so you just want to, so, you know, there's, um, some drugs that, well, I don't really use, maybe in Ashton, um, drugs for, uh, HIV, things like lapinavir, ritonavir, which are, you know, antiviral drugs that were used at that point and have sort of been replaced by newer drugs in, in the treatment of HIV. And as far as, um, lapinavir, ritonavir goes, it's probably, unless you guys are aware of something I'm not, has like, it has like a New England Journal randomized controlled trial that's actually published about it. Yeah. Um, I know, wonder how those algorithms are looking now. Uh, right. Like, <laughs> of, uh, the, of the things out there, it has that trial. It didn't show much benefit, but it was also, like, used in super sick people, kind of late in their yep. disease. Yeah. Very underpowered. Very underpowered. Yeah. So there's, there's caveats with it. But at least um, I, I feel like the generic enthusiasm around lipinavir ritonavir is pretty minimal. Um from anyone in our division, certainly, or even kind of stuff I've just been reading. Um, gotcha. The next one. What about... I, know, I mean, I think certainly there's that. Uh, you know, people have tried, like, adizanavir. So these are all drugs that work directly on viral replication. So these being protease inhibitors. Then you've got, you know, the more pro the drugs that are supposed to be more promising, like uh, when this outbreak first came out, when this outbreak first manifested in China, the, a bunch of um, a council of elders sat around a room, struck a gavel, and said that they felt that remdesivir was the best drug to trial. And so this remdesivir, a trial that we're actually participating in here at UIC, plug for patients with uh, moderate to severe uh, disease. Perfect. And that's a direct acting antiviral and it works it's a, it works on more, it has broad antiviral activity. So that's why it was picked as one of the um, uh, these drugs to go forward with. And remdesivir is a, is a drug that has also been kind of thought uh, to work with other conditions such as Ebola um, and other viral conditions uh, as yeah. well. Yeah, and and remember that the lopinavir ritonavir right and and, and with, uh, Chloroquine was looked at at uh, for SARS-CoV or MERS, I can't remember which one, and there was some uh, uh, feeling that maybe it improved. But again, the, the numbers were so few, 
the severity of illness with uh, Ebola is a lot more consistent than the wide variability that you see with COVID-19. COVID-19, right? I mean, up right now, estimates are a quarter of people could be asymptomatic. It may even be more. Who knows? Yeah, so, and uh, the, 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 the information on that is emerging, um, and it's clear that people are shedding prior to symptoms. Um, yes. It, it is possible. Uh, again, this is in the realm of, of un- kind of being unclear. And I think we mentioned this in the previous episode of the Chief Cast, where, you know, asymptomatic versus pre-symptomatic. Um, I prefer the term pre-symptomatic. Um, and this happens with other conditions such as herpes, where you can be um, shedding uh, viruses uh, in your genital area before you develop an actual uh, ulcer or, or an actual uh, vesicle. Um, Dr. Vainalora, I don't know if this is appropriate to say right now, but I'm surprised at how you reached for herpes right from the get-go. Yeah. These I are not personal not, stories. These are not personal stories. Um, what about um, IL-6 pathway inhibitors? Um, yeah, so, yeah, go ahead, Scott. Well, as you know, so we mostly talked about antivirals. Hydroxychloroquine kind of is a combo drug in a sense, like it has a bunch of effects, which includes some anti-inflammatory or immune modulatory and possibly some antiviral effect as well, at least in vitro. Um, and then there's these other drugs, um, tocilizumab, <laughs> sirolumab, and there's another one that I don't remember the name of it, ends in MAB, that are all, you know, monoclonal antibodies for IL-6. Um, and they're... The drugs come from an interesting uh, treatment that we don't really deal with a lot of UIC, the, like CAR T-cell therapy. So that's like leukemia patients. They take some of the T-cells from the leukemia patients. They basically genetically modify the patient's T-cells to attack leukemic cells. They yep. give them back, and then they're like basically their immune system goes crazy, and they get this cytokine storm syndrome, which looks very much like sepsis. Uh, and then those patients get um, get these inhibitors, which kind of tamps down that immune response and allows them to survive this very effective treatment for hematological malignancies that has this major side effect of this like explosion of cytokine activity. So applying a theory like that to something like um, COVID-19, that maybe if you hit the right, um, you know, the right target in the inflammatory cascade, that you could, you could prevent some of the, the damage that seems to happen in some of these folks where they get very high levels of ferritin, high levels of IL-6, multi-organ dysfunction, et cetera. Uh, with that said, um, in sepsis, the flu, like this basic concept has been tried in a lot of things. Uh, to variable success would be my general um, impression. Um, but, you know, people are trying, and I know uh, we even talked about, <laughs> I don't know if the status is, or if you guys know, go for it, the, um, Sarolumab trial. Yeah, um, we were we were going to be a site for that. So a lot of places are looking at this. At the VA, I think they've given a dose of the tocilizumab. Yeah, um, yep. And uh, it's still, but it's still, it's just like the other drugs. Like the, the data is just not there yet. It's just theoretical, primarily at this point. And I guess that's what's interesting about hydroxychloroquine that it may have an antiviral property, but also an anti-inflammatory property in the setting of the cytokine storm and kind of inflammatory storm that can, that could precipitate um, yeah. ARDS. Because it's not a direct antiviral just for the audience. You know, it works by, what does it do? Increase the, increases the intracellular pH. Yeah. Um, 
issues with uh, uh, prevention of like completely completing endocytosis or something like that. But certainly sure, there's sure, that. What, what else? You know, the other the other therapies that we think. I mean, obviously there are outside of just these direct antiviral drugs or these uh, other agents like hydroxychloroquine, where a lot of people are interested in immune modulation. So or um, or working on monoclonal antibodies, um, uh, using NK T cell therapy. Uh, and of course, the big one right now, the one that seems most biologically plausible to most people is the use of convalescent plasma. And that's another interesting, I think, historical uh, tidbit. Um, Plasma-related therapies um, is really one of the first therapies that we've had in the pre-antibiotic era uh, to treat patients with all sorts of infections. And in fact, in 1919, um, I just found a JAMA article uh, looking at the use of convalescent plasma for patients with influenza pneumonia. Um, so th again, it's interesting how uh, some of these things that we're doing, um, we also looked into in 1919. Um, I think plasma, the use of plasma has, of course, quite a bit of data and I think is, from a hypothetical standpoint, much more plausible that it will help or work um, compared to, to, to some of these other drugs uh, since we've used it so many times for other things. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that we looked at, at hydroxychloroquine in 1919 and we're also, uh, we also looked into convalescent plasma back then. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people find the convalescent plasma because, right, I mean, we do do that for illnesses right now. It's essentially giving antibodies during acute illnesses. We just yeah. had a patient with CMV. We give CMV IgG in the form of cytogam. Or before hepatitis A vaccine was around, I remember as a child, we, when we would go to India or whatever, they would give you hepatitis A immunoglobulin injections. Yeah. Or, or, uh, or for post-exposure prophylaxis. Or for post-exposure prophylaxis, exactly. So the most, I think that is really, really exciting for people. Um, you know, the problem again is it seems that most people believe that a lot of these therapies, if they are effective, they probably are effective in the earlier stages as opposed to the later stages. But that's true with any antiviral or any therapy, right? If you give antibiotics to somebody who's in septic shock, they're not going to work as well as, as if you catch the person earlier. So, Right, because really it comes down to you get infected, the infection causes whatever direct damage it does, and then it kicks off an inflammatory cascade that leads to sepsis-type syndromes, et cetera. So whether it's sepsis or bacterial infection, the sooner you do antibiotics, the better to interrupt that cascade and hopefully not get all the other downstream consequences. Because, um, you know, and like we talked earlier with that lapinavir-ritonavir trial, if they're getting, you know, an antiviral on day eight after they're already having ARDS in the ICU, what difference does that make? Would exactly. it make a difference on day two and stop Yeah, that, um, it's like giving an antibiotic when the patient's in shock versus before the patient gets in shock. <laughs> Just what we do. Yeah. But there are a ton of trials going on everywhere. There are a ton of drugs in the pipeline. Every company has come out of the woodworks because one is they know if they can find a game changer, to use somebody's words, they can really get this to market very quickly. 
and uh, there are a lot fewer hurdles to uh, to jump over than there have been in the past. Uh, same is true for vaccines. I don't know if we're really talking about that, but um, again, you know, people are really champing at the bit to uh, work on a lot of this stuff. Excellent. So I want to ask you guys two questions. What is the potential or suggested treatment pathway at UI Health? And then what what are we going to do for, for outpatients? What should we do for these patients that we're seeing in the outpatient setting? And again, these we don't have data. This is just suggestions. And, and overall, um, we're, we're not 100% sure. Nobody is. Um, now, we do have suggestions and guidelines that are created that are similar to the guidelines in other facilities. Um, I opened up uh, one of the versions, um, and I want to go through it with you guys. So say you have a COVID-19 confirmed patient by lab. Um, the first step that I see here is possible enrollment in the NIH study. Um, so that makes sense. Um, we have a therapeutic agent that has a, a likelihood of hopefully working. We have a systematic way to both give um, the benefits to this patient, but also uh, the potential benefits, I should say, but also measure it in a way that is both IRB approved and, um, you know, comparable, you know, with other groups and, and, and other, you know, control groups and so forth. Um, Scott, do you want to say anything about the remdesivir trial? Um, I think, you know, the, the big thing is, uh, if you, if you're actually taking care of patient hospital, pretty much anyone who's hospitalized is, is, um, a potential candidate to get into the actual trial. You can't just be suspicious for COVID. You have to be, you know, test confirmed. And then the main exclusion criteria is um, really renal dysfunction. Um, with a rel- I mean, it's like a relatively high threshold. So a, a, a GFR less than 50, um, you're technically, you're, you're not eligible for the trial. Or if you're at uh, LLTs, you're greater than five times the upper limit of normal or you're pregnant. Um, so there's still a good number of people who will qualify. I think we've enrolled somewhere in the ballpark of six to seven people already. And we'll hopefully look to do more. Um, and both for, you know, all the treatments, as we mentioned, are still being tested to really understand their efficacy. And in particular, in this time when everybody's scared and everyone's trying to do things really quickly, getting good science and good data is the absolute most important thing we can do. Absolutely. Um, isn't, this isn't going away tomorrow, and we need to know as best as we can moving forward what the best things to do are. So that should be kind of your first um, go-to if the patient will qualify. Uh, we are looking at it behind the scenes to see who would qualify, and we we'll, might even reach out to you. but. If for some reason we don't and you think your patient might qualify, you can always give us a call. And overall, we, you know, there's a bunch of other things that we will t- take a look at. The GFR, the patient should not be pregnant. Um, you know, your LFTs should be within a certain range. Uh, but that's not stuff for you guys to worry. We will take a look at all of that. Um, other studies to consider. What about Cerilumab? Uh, well, again, I don't know what the status of that is at UIC. We heard that uh, Dr. Jerry Christian had uh, spoken gotcha. with, I think, Regeneron and Sanofi. I think they're combining on this. Uh, it's a publicly available drug. It's FDA approved. I think it's called Kevzara or something like that. Nice. But it's a, it's a competitor to the Ectemra. Uh, which- you can't see it on the audio, but he's wearing a Kevzara t-shirt. Um, that nice. Writing this with a Kevzara pen. <laughs> Exactly. So, you know, I'm not, you know, and I, and I would use Clorox anywhere, brand name Clorox, <laughs> sodium hypochlorite, anywhere. <laughs> um, 
that's what I put in my little spray bottle. But seriously, you know, you you uh, I I'm not sure what the exact status is. I think. But I think it's important to filling up really really quickly. Yeah, and it's important to just understand that, you know, whenever you have a positive. Let us know and we'll see how to, you know, and, and ask pharmacy because we can see what which one of these studies we can, uh, you know, hopefully enroll the patient in. Um, what about so then? All right. Just going down our treatment algorithm, we go down to hypoxia, presence of risk factors, etc. And then it says suggest initiating hydroxychloroquine and consider assessing ability um, to receive either remdesivir plus or minus antibiotics. I'll start with the easy one. Plus or minus antibiotics? What do you guys think for that? It's This is a viral infection. Yeah, I think there's a big concern that, it, it, again, this is a lot of this is anecdotal. We don't have great numbers, but I've heard anywhere between 10 and 30% of patients can have superimposed bacterial infection. Excellent. Um, I think it seems prudent to use antibacterials Let's put it this way. We use antibacterials for everybody that's in the unit anyway. So by the time they get to the unit, most people are going to get broad spectrum antibacterials. Is that right or wrong? I think it's difficult to be academic with the patient who's decompensating. Number two is, I think there are people who are looking at these leukocyte counts. We took care of a patient a week ago who came in with an elevated white blood cell count. As you guys already know, leukopenia is a cardinal feature of COVID-19. So if somebody comes in with leukocytosis, you may be more likely to think that they have a superimposed bacterial infection. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, the, the community-acquired pneumonia guidelines that came out um, in October, um, it, 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 it talks about how for some of these patients, particularly patients with severity, you should not withhold uh, antibiotic therapy due to the risk of potential co-infection. And of course, you won't know that your patient is co-infected until you have a positive blood culture or the patient simply doesn't get better. So that's, a, you know, particularly in a very sick patient, um, that is something to consider. Um, yeah, that's for influenza, yes. Um, exactly. So for influenza, the, the, the CAB guidelines, first of all, tell you not to get a Procal. Uh, and second of all, say, you know what, if your patient is sick enough, to be admitted, then he is definitely at risk for bacterial co-infection. Um, so they suggest treating patients with severe influenza with antibacterials as well. For COVID in and of itself, as Mahesh was saying, the super infection is, you know, anecdotally, it seems like it's low, around 10 to 20 percent. Um, but when present, it can increase mortality quite a bit. So overall, my clinical approach has been to, um, you know, for patients that are doing fine and don't have uh, leukocytosis uh, or, or other signs, but particularly for the ones that are moderate and not severely ill, um, you know, it's kind of a plus or minus. For patients who are, exactly, for patients who are progressing or, or are higher risk or have leukocytosis or some of these other features, you know, go ahead. Um, and even for the moderate ones, if you're going to start an antibiotic, then have a low threshold to stop it, you know, to stop it at day two or three or simply, you know, do a course of five days. Uh, but I would say be careful with holding just because super infection, um, you know, can occur. And um, I think know. the general rule of don't get cute if somebody's really sick is a, is a good one to follow. <laughs> yeah, Love you, it. Just, you don't want to be academic about this thing. And the truth is, the good thing about uh, these antibacterials is nowadays we're using them for five days, right? For community. Exactly. Pneumonia. Exactly. And so resistance, although it's there, isn't as much of an issue for somebody who's on antibiotics for 14 days or whatever. Excellent. Um, oh, another shout out for Favipravir. 
This was this was a drug uh, that we forgot to talk about. Japan is testing it right now. It was actually did they did they fly you there, Mahesh? Well, this is the thing. It is a produced. It is a it's owned by a subsidiary of Fuji Film. What? So if you you know I don't know if it's like you know what the I get it the ISO is on that, but the <laughs> um, but, you know I thought that was kind of funny. Anyway, I guess not. But they're looking at it over there, and some okay. people say it's really promising. But again, we're not going to know uh, what the deal is with that. Are you suggesting that I buy stock in Fujifilm? Yes. <laughs> in Fuji Film. And then it'll get to whoever the uh, subsidiary is of Fujifilm. Well done, well done, well done. Chemical is what I'm reading. So what about, what about plus or minus hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine? Because again, that is something that is everywhere. Um, and yeah. now we're outside of the kind of the pathways that we've mentioned. We're just there that it says, you know what? Here's hydroxychloroquine. Do what you may. So what is what is your take on that? So I think it's worth... Oh, sorry, man. Go no, go ahead. This is a point of contention for several of us here. Well, let's not um, I think I think... So what is the data that's out there? So there's these in vitro studies that show that it probably inhibits its replication of SARS-CoV-2. Great. There is that super small, basically, like, case series out of France... Um, where it was used <laughs> for some reason in combination with azithromycin, where there may have been some increased clearance of virus in patients who had COVID. But honestly, that data is extremely, that data in particular is extremely weak. I don't even there know why data. we even talk about that. You know what I mean? Like, you, it, some dude yeah. swabbed somebody? There is a, there is a randomized a, control trial now. That's there great. There is a randomized control trial out of China, out of Wuhan, it was 62 patients. It was randomized controlled trial theoretically. It's pre-publication, so they didn't have 100% of the data. Um, the trial, both groups received normal care, which included like antiviral. Antivirals, care. exactly. You just lose a map. They don't give numbers or percentages of who got what, etc. Yeah. With all of those caveats, um, they did show somewhat improved time to clinical resolution of disease. Essentially, the people who got hydroxychloroquine plus all those other things got uh, better a little quicker, and there were no severe cases in the hydroxychloroquine group, or there were four severe cases in the other group. Um, and this was the, the who were they giving it to? So it was mild people. So it was people who did not have significant hypoxemia, you know, not ARDS patients, et cetera. So between the maybe they got better a little faster and um, none of the people in the hydroxychloroquine group went on to develop severe symptoms, I would say we would all agree it's weak data. It isn't even like totally fleshed out. Um, you know, all the potential confounding variables uh, in the study. With that said, it seems like it's at a minimum, it didn't show it was harmful and maybe is like a very early type of signal that maybe there's some benefit. There. I think maybe but there is some benefit, but I really don't, don't know how we get it from that study. Right. And as far as I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. And I think you, you've mentioned some of these great, some of these studies, I think quite well. Um, the, the main kind of push was a consensus document from a group of experts without any actual data to show. Chinese guidelines said to use chloroquine pretty early after this started. I remember reading that and, a while ago. And then yeah, eventually they said, they said, we want, we like chloroquine, you know, and they didn't have anything to support it. And then there was a release in China that said in, in hospitals, we've used it and it's working. 
And then you try and like click the links to like see where's the actual data at the bottom of that kind of claim and it just doesn't go anywhere. And so we just, bottom line is that's what's out there. We still don't really know very so, well. Um, I think, and I think we, we go ahead, Mark. Let me pose this question to the group here, okay? And I think this is the big thing. Every, so, okay, we don't have a lot of great data. We're thinking that this is, you know, this is, some of this is anecdotal and use this, use that, et cetera. I mean, obviously this is based on some in vitro stuff. And clearly, we, didn't, we don't have great data on some of the antibacterials that we use for multidrug resistant uh, uh, bacteria. And we go ahead and use them because we think they'll get high enough levels and this and that. And then we kind of wait for the data to come out later. Yeah. Why? Because we're desperate. And I think when we get desperate, we look at the pluses and minuses of this. And again, I know that there's disagreement here. And I think this is great. I think let's talk a little bit about... Let's talk a little bit about that disagreement because I think it's very interesting. Okay. Um, before that, I will summarize and you guys chime in. Um, essentially, you know, I might miss a few, but it, essentially what the data is, there is, you know, use in early on um, based on in vitro data that we knew from before. Um, there is a blanket statement without supporting data. And there's some small studies. And by the way, some have shown and some have not. So there's conflicting data all of which are from very um, poorly powered and you know quite flawed studies. And then finally, there's this other like group of data, which I personally enjoy, which is about what it does to the viral load in people's noses, understanding that the viral load in people's noses may depend on how you're taking the sample and all these other things. Um, and they don't actually have clinical data you know, I mean, it, it has virologic data from a nose, but we don't know if the patient died or not. Um, so I think that's where we are. And I think we've all I think we're all in agreement that overall, that's the quality of the data, give or take. I had to die afraid of I personally die without the virus. In my nose. <laughs> take that virus. <laughs> OK, so then we go into a very practical question, which is and, and again, physicians look at the same data and can can have different conclusions. So I think from academically, all of us are struggling with what to do. Um, so Mahesh, tell us what you, I, I am very, uh, I think I'm, I'm concerned about the use in mass of, of uh, hydroxychloroquine, um, but I think it's completely valid to go ahead and use as well. So Mahesh, you tell me why, you know, wh what your heart is at. I think, the, I think a responsible use of this is as we have it in the guidelines. For patients who are at high risk and hospitalized, those are patients who are, you know, I would say most people would say those patients are moderate disease, okay? Because mild disease doesn't get admitted to the hospital. Moderate is the ward, severe is the unit. Um, by the time you become severe, is it really helpful? Probably, I would, my guess is no. But I, I think we should use it just like we're advocating here in moderate. Now, I will go as far as to say that if there were an unlimited supply of this drug, which there is not, I would consider using it on outpatients. And the analogy there would be using Oseltamivir, trade name Tamiflu. <laughs> Oseltamivir is a drug. You guys are all, all kinds of people want to prescribe Tamiflu. Oh, let's get Tamiflu. The best data on Tamiflu is literally yeah. nothing. Yeah. It reduces your fever and your illness by 0.7 days. Yet you guys are using it like water. Why? Because there's plenty of it and it doesn't have many side effects. Time out. I, on also Tamiflu, I will say, it's, it's you know, 
it's recommended for people who are sicker. And by that, I mean, there's minimal, you know, benefit, but that small benefit can go a long way if you're really, really sick or hospitalized. Maybe. Uh, maybe. There, but there's not maybe. a ton of data. It's a maybe. It, there's not a ton of data for there like... Isn't. There isn't, but that's that's where the guidelines go. It's 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 yeah, not the yeah. best drug. Um, you're, you know, it's it's more... Uh, however, it's recommended, you know, for hospitalized yeah. patients, basically. But again, guidelines, schmidelines, right? I mean, again, those guidelines, it's the reason why it's there is because there is a lot of supply of the drug and because the drug's easy to access and it has very few side effects. Now, um, what about... You do the same thing for hydroxychloroquine, except it's not easy to access. We should reserve it right now. I also um, don't think it's that benign. Um, there's a couple of issues on my end. Number one... If we were to go with um, this supporting data, you know, we can find a million other things, including, you know, herbs and stuff that that there that is recommended with similar data and guideline guidance from China. So I'm not sure why we're focused so much on on chloroquine. I think it's okay to use the same way that you could give chemotherapy to somebody that it may not benefit. You know, end of life compassionate care kind of thing, but it needs to have an in-depth discussion, you know? Okay, I'll give you chemo, but it may not work. It may not change the fact that you're going to still die. I think with this, it's the same story. The chloroquine, there's some plausibility that it might, but we don't have evidence to support that it helps. And honestly, we're not sure if it harms either. Chloroquine is used... Kind of sure that it probably does. In the short I am going to read you... No. So this is... uh, this is, um, This is an article from... Uh, oh, it's that one guy in California who took a lot of it and he died. I think he took chloroquine. No, 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 no. I mean, that guy took like that guy took like fish chloroquine, right? It's like, like a more like philosophical question, right? So there's shit we do all the time that has actually pretty poor data behind it, right? So but 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 we're talking about a condition like a COPD exacerbation have horrible data. We literally do it all the time, and we know those are but nothing compares. To the to the hundreds of thousands of people that are hospitalized with this, right? Like that's that's the problem that we're using it on a gazillion people. So I think the steroid example actually applies pretty well to that, only because like so many people have COPD and stuff. And again, if you actually dig into the data on what steroids do during a COPD exacerbation, it is absurdly not impressive. Um, what I will say is, so why are we using hydroxychloroquine in this, given the positive data, all the things we said? Because the other options, lopinavir, ritonavir, remdesivir, abipavir, whatever, are either like trial basis or compassionate basis only, have a frankly negative trial against it, in this case of lopinavir, ritonavir. Um, and uh, that's pretty much it, right? Because like there is no other... Again, I personally, do. again, and, and this is just, this is all purely academic. Nobody here is right or wrong. Uh, I personally... Uh, Except for me and Scott. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm personally concerned about the, the ethics of using a drug with minimal evidence in mass. Um, and here's a, and, and I don't, I'm not sure that, that it doesn't harm. So first of all, my favorite, you know, evidence-based story is vancomycin, right? Vancomycin, if you were to tell Alexander Fleming that there was going to be a new drug in the 60s that would also destroy the membrane and that we were going to give it a cool name, Vanco from the word vanquish, he'd be like, sign me up. But as soon as we started doing stuff, 
it just didn't kill the staph as well as beta-lactams. So again, evidence-based medicine is a tricky thing. Sometimes things, things that you think should work don't, and sometimes things randomly do work and you don't know why. So I think it's really tricky because we also don't know if these things harm. Now, with regards to the harm of chloroquine, the potential harm, I'm going to read you this excerpt. The decades-old chloroquine pharmaceuticals are remarkable drugs with anti-inflammatory and antiviral properties. They are cheap to produce and would be immediately available to treat COVID and safe if found to be effective and prescribed and monitored properly. However, due to a relatively tight therapeutic index, cardiac toxicity may occur following QT prolongation and sodium channel inhibition, resulting in ventricular arrhythmias, conduction blockade, and cardiovascular collapse. Increased toxicity risk due to drug-drug interaction, underlying cardiac uh, morbidities, and acute kidney injury, as frequently observed in COVID-19 patients, represent a challenging clinical scenario. Parenthesis here, this is me saying this, we know that there could be some cardiac uh, uh, clinical features of COVID uh, in moderate to severe patients. So that adds to some context there too. So back to the article, self-medicating is also dangerous, you know, and that's the, the, the whole uh, guy yeah, taking it from right. fish. Clinical toxicologists... Forget he does self-medicate every time he comes home after work. Clinical toxicologists oh. remember the 1982 oh. suicide outbreak in France following a book called Suicide, a How-To Guide that encouraged chloroquine ingestion to complete suicide. Additionally, they acknowledged the dangers of uncontrolled delivery of these antimalarial drugs. In January 2020, before all of this, France, you know, classified hydroxychloroquine as a list of poisonous substances. Therefore, while awaiting urgent, adequately powered, randomized trials to assess chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine attributed benefits to treat COVID, these drugs should be prescribed cautiously with initial cardiac evaluation in outpatients and daily EKG and twice daily residual blood concentration monitoring. If antimalarial drug effectiveness further disappoints, the onset of well-established drug-induced toxicity will not be forgiven. Physicians should always mind the Hippocratic maxim of primum non nocere. By the way, previous trials in influenza didn't work either. So I'm just concerned of blanket use. Which I know is not what you no, guys are advocating. You're right. And I think that's why we've said, right, Dr. Burgundy, that's why we've said we're going to use it in moderately ill patients that are hospitalized. But I think it really boils down to this maxim. Do the benefits outweigh the risks? I think most people in this situation where people decompensate, it's scary, there's a pandemic. I think most people would say yes while we're waiting on further data. Here's another one. We were pretty sick and you were in the hospital and you had pneumonia. There you go. And we got an EKG and your QTC was like 432. Would you let it, would you want hydroxychloroquine? <laughs> Who, me? <laughs> it's a true philosophical question. Yeah, no. And here's another good article that again is, is, is mimics what I think. Data to support the use of hydroxychloroquine, limited and conclusive. The drugs have some in vitro activity, including on coronaviruses and influenza, but previous randomized trials in patients with influenza have been negative. In COVID, one small non-randomized study from France demonstrated benefit, but had serious methodological flaws and a follow-up study lacked a control group and didn't show benefit. Yet another very small trial in China showed only you know, minimal recovery rates. And again, very poorly uh, designed trial. Sadly, reports of adverse events have increased, with several countries reporting poisonings and about one death reported uh, on that random, that poor guy who weighed the fish tank is being cited everywhere. (laughs) Anti-malarial drugs can cause ventricular arrhythmias, QT prolongation, cardiac toxicity, uh, which may pose particular risk for critically ill patients. 
Given these serious potential adverse effects, the hasty and inappropriate interpretation of poor literature by public leaders has potential to do serious harm. At this time of crisis, it is our ethical obligation as physicians and researchers to organize and refer patients to expedited, well-performed, randomized trial that can clarify if, when, and for whom this medication can be useful. There are 10 trials underway, and hopefully we'll get an answer in a couple of weeks. Right, and I think that's reflected in the way we've designed our guideline, right? Like you, the first option is to go into the exactly. trial. And then if you, you know, if you basically don't qualify for any of the, the, the trials that you have at a given hospital, then you're left with the, the, the stuff that's left, which in, our, which in this case is, is hydroxychloroquine. So the bottom line is we're not gonna really know the answer to this, at least for a little bit longer. Hopefully, God help us all, we'll get some better data out of some of these trials that we can just make more um, informed choices. Um, but it is, uh, it's, it's a frustrating time. Um, yeah, because we wanna do something, right? Yeah, it's just frustrating because we want to be able to do something. And I think there's a clear human bias and certainly a medicine bias towards doing more. Like doing more is good. If someone dies and you didn't do all the things, you are shamed. If you did something that maybe you shouldn't have and something bad happened, it's kind of harder to tell. And that's not as punished in my in my like um, experience as a trainee in medicine and so on. Um, sins of omissions can be punished more oftentimes than sins of commission is my, is my um, experience uh, in training and stuff. So I think there's a clear- But what are you omitting here, right? Like that's what's so tricky. Like, and again, there's no answer to this, but would you feel better if you gave something without proof and it works? Or would you feel worse if you gave something without proof and it harms? Again, I don't know the answer to that either. Yeah, right. And I think, I think for chloroquine specifically, the major toxicity is gonna to be cardiac. You can monitor them with EKGs and telemetry and whatever when they're in the hospital. And so if you're using it in a controlled setting in appropriate patients, I think it's relatively safe. Um, if you're giving it to everybody on an outpatient basis, just be on it, that's a different story. But um, I think that uh, the, the, the crappy small trials also don't show that there's any, um, like it's not like the chloroquine groups did worse. Yeah. You know, they reflect safety if nothing else. Well, yeah, I don't know. It sounds like, um, again, those studies are so small, and I don't know that we have used hydroxychloroquine in, you know, ARDS type, like, you know, uh, sofa scores through the roof type of patients. And then the other tragedy here is everybody's using it, which means that the people who actually need it may not have it. And those are people who actually get benefit and depend on it for their life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I agree, and that's why I think it should be limited to, you know, we use, we give it to like about two patients a day, uh, uh, is what we were hear, hearing from our pharmacists. So I think it's important to remember that it's in short supply. And as, um, yeah, and as much as I'm always the, the you know, vocal about this, I, I really think that physician and patient autonomy is important. And if a patient and a physician wanna do this, they they should be able to, but the the conversation should be there that we don't know what we're doing. Um, yeah. There's a there's an interesting article in JAMA about all of these conundrums, and it talks a little bit about the need to do versus the need to learn. So the need to treat is the need to do, and the need to learn is is the need to study. Um, and again, I think we're all struggling with how to do this. We are in an academic institution and have access to some of these trials, but other places don't. So what do right. you do then? 
Um, and, and again, it, it doesn't mean that giving it or not giving it is right or wrong. Um, but I think that's, that complicates the picture that access to these trials, which by the way is something that the, the, the HIV, uh, uh, population in the 80s dealt with a lot, right? Fredo, I think you're breaking up. Yeah. One second. I'm not there. Fredo's cutting up a lot. I think he's totally, he is now. I'm back, I'm back. back. Yeah, yeah. Okay. At least I was the one talking, so it didn't cut up. But I was saying, I was saying that, that, that this need to learn versus need to treat happened in the 80s too. And a young Dr. Fashi was basically saying, we, you know, I can't give you AZT unless we study it in a way that it shows that it works and stuff. So this is yeah. this is that's why we wanted to talk about this because these are important arguments that have happened before and will continue to happen in the future. Great. Cool. All right. I think that's a good summary on treatment so far. All right. Hopefully we'll come back and uh, and chloroquine works and or something works, right? Or indisivir. Or, or something works. Yeah. yeah. Something works, and that whatever that something is, we can actually get. That's the other thing I'm worried about. Yeah, we need enough of it. You know, like convalescent plasma, if we had tons of it, I think people would be using it more liberally, but we don't, so. Yeah, exactly. Oh, one more thing. To finish off the conversation, I think it would be great to end the Chief Cast or this Chief Cast episode with um, Dr. Fashi's thoughts on these very same topics. So I found a clip. Um, I believe from Friday or Thursday, where he is asked about hydroxychloroquine. Take a listen. But that was not a very robust study. It is still possible that there is a beneficial effect, but the study that was just quoted, and on a scale of strength of evidence, that's not overwhelmingly strong. It's an indication, a hint of it. But getting back to what you said just a moment ago, that X percent, I think you said 37 percent of doctors feel that it's beneficial. We don't operate on how you feel. We operate on what evidence is and data is. So although there is some suggestion with the study that was just mentioned by Dr. Oz, I mean, granted that there is a suggestion that there is a benefit there, I think we've got to be careful that we don't make that majestic leap to assume that this is a knockout drug. We still need to do the kinds of studies that definitively prove whether any intervention, not just this one, any intervention is truly safe and effective. But when you don't have that information, it's understandable, and, and I grant that it's understandable, why people may want to take something anyway, even with the slightest hint of it being effective and I have no problem with that. Here's more on the use of chloroquine. Obviously this is a good drug uh, in many respects for some of the diseases you mentioned and the one thing we don't want to happen is that individuals who really need a drug with a proven indication don't have it available. But just one, I, I can't escape getting back to you said 75% of doctors think that it works. We really don't, don't care what 75% think it works. You know, that's not the no, issue. No, 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 I should clarify because I said Spain, 72% of the doctors in Spain are prescribing it. Okay, good. Okay, well, that's fine. 